The Gist is brought to you by Cameron Hughes Wine, offering luxury wine at affordable prices. To get free shipping and a free sommelier corkscrew on your first order of three or more bottles, go to chwine.com and enter the promo code GIST at checkout. And by Betterment, the largest automated investing service managing billions of dollars for people just like you. Get up to six months of investing free when you go to betterment.com slash GIST. Betterment, investing made better. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, April 19th, 2016. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and today is Election Day in my state, New York State, and I am not voting. I will tell you why I'm not voting. Why, Mike? Why are you not voting? I'm glad I asked. I'm not voting because I am not registered in a political party. Why, Mike? Why are you not registered in a political party? Again, asking all the right questions. I'm not registered in a political party. Well, it's a two-step answer. The first is for a number of years I worked for NPR, and before then I worked for On the Media, and I thought as such it was right to project the image of neutrality, if not actual neutrality. I would say, if not actual neutrality, but at least the image of neutrality. But I'll tell you what else it did. It wasn't just me trying to avoid the question of who are you really going to vote for? Please declare your allegiance. Why is it better to hide your true stripes than to reveal it? In fact, there's an argument, and Slate embraces this argument. Isn't it more honest to be honest about who you support rather than to hide behind this cloak, this veneer of uh, objectivity? Yes, yes, I guess that's true, but I will tell you what went on in my life. So the seminal event was an election actually involving Hillary Clinton. It is when she moved to New York and ran for Senate, and she was going to run against Rudy Giuliani, but he went and got prostate cancer, dropped out of the race, and so she was left to run against Rick Lazio. Now, Rick Lazio was like a nobody from Long Island, a little pipsqueak of a kid, and Hillary Clinton's credentials were a lot better than his. But one problem, We're talking about Senator from New York, and I just did not like, as a lifelong New Yorker, I didn't like the carpet bagging. I didn't like the idea that she could come in, wife of a president, I know she had her own accomplishments, but by that point, she hadn't done anything on her own, no other lower elected office, you know, had she run for, I don't know, a city council or... Uh, representative even, I might be inclined to vote for her, but I just thought that she was gunning for a Senate seat by taking advantage of our good nature as New Yorkers. And I actually voted for Rick Lazio. Such was my municipal or state pride. And you know what? I was wrong about that because Hillary Clinton turned out to be a really good senator. But I will say this, as she was going about her senatorial duties, building up coalitions and taking the time to be a good listener and not to be a rock star in the Senate, and eventually all the other senators would come to compliment her, I looked inward a little bit I like to do this, or at least I like to say I do this. I realized that I was not giving her credit quickly enough. I realized months after it became pretty clear that she was a really good senator, I realized that I was still making arguments to myself internally. I don't think this affected my work, but I was still making arguments. Oh, she's new in the Senate. Oh, she doesn't deserve to be here. Oh, we'll see. 
And you know why I was doing this? I was doing this to justify my vote. You see, I have a problem, and it's that I like to be right. I guess we all like to be right, but I really like to be right. Now, because of this, it has some good sides, like I put a lot of effort into researching things, and I try not to jump to conclusions, and I even know that I could be wrong and hold out the ideals of moderation. I also buy into a lot of the ideas of journalism and objectivity, not that we can achieve objectivity, but it's something to strive for, right? Because you're not always correct about everything. But I so like to be right that I think that I was holding my vote for Rick Lazio against Hillary Clinton, affecting my judgment of Hillary Clinton. And it was at that point that I said, if I am going to stay in the news business and if I'm going to give opinions, I'll vote in elections because it's really important civically, but I'm not going to register for a political party. There's another reason why I don't register for a political party. Whatever I get out of registering for a political party, it's not much. My vote will not affect ever a presidential election. It's really unlikely to affect the allotment of one delegate. Though who knows? I live in Brooklyn. It's pretty liberal. Bernie could do well there. But I think that what my registration will do, it's more likely to be used as a cudgel against me than something that I ever get for it. Like when I did a story on Bill O'Reilly and exposed that he used to always say I'm a registered independent, and he wasn't, he was a registered Republican, it would be really easy for Bill O'Reilly to come back at me and say, oh, what do you know? You're a registered Democrat. But as at least a registered independent, I get to avoid that. And that is why I do not vote, but I call upon you to do so, or to have done so, or to do so should a vote come your way. Unless you host a daily podcast about news and opinions. And if you do, come to me. I can mentor. On the show today, I spiel about a hot-button bill before Congress 22 years ago. But first, you know, did I really make the right decision in not voting? I think I need a little coaching. A little life coaching. Or is that bullshit? Cameron Hughes Wine is a new sponsor of The Gist, and I'd like to tell you about them because they told me, I think Cameron, I think Cameron himself was on the call with me and he explained what he does. And I'm not even a wine drinker. I'm more a beer guy. And I wound up saying, I wish there was a version of this for beer, but I don't think there can be because it's how the wine business works. So what happens is the best wine comes from the best vineyards, but sometimes they make too much wine. In fact, it's it's often by design. They want to make, oh, I might be using the word wrong, but they want to make a blend. I think this is the blend they use. And so let's say they want to have a blend of uh, 40, 20, 40. Merlot, Pinot Noir, Cabernet. So they still make a big batch of the Cabernet. The Cabernet is great, but it was intended for the blend. Now they got some extra Cabernet, right? They don't want to sell it just as their Cabernet. So this guy, Cameron Hughes, comes in and he buys the wine, the great wine from the great vineyards, and he marks it down tremendously. And the vineyard wins. Hey, we got someone to buy our excess wine. Nothing wrong with the wine. In fact, it's perfect wine, a different year. We we might be selling this wine in our own label. And Cameron Hughes puts his label on the wine and he sells like what would be a $100 bottle of wine for half the price, for 80% less than the regular labeled price. He's been doing it for 10 years. Cameron Hughes does not typically offer discounts, but he is offering a fantastic deal on your first order of three or more bottles. Free shipping on your order, free sommelier-grade corkscrew, a great deal for wines that are already 40 to 80% off, and shipping is free. Here's how to get the deal. Go to chwine.com, chwine.com, shop for wine. And when you get to checkout, enter the code GIST. If you order three or more bottles, and if you're a first-time orderer, you get this free shipping 
and the corkscrew. I can't say enough about the corkscrew. That's chwine.com, promo code GIST, free shipping, free sommelier corkscrew on your first order. So people think I bring Maria Konnikova into the studios once a week or so for your education, for your entertainment. It's really not that. It's some version of the talking cure. People just enjoy conversation, and I take direction from her. She gives me some advice. I have turned her, without her knowing it, into a life coach, which brings me to the industry of life coaching. Life coaches, or know-it-alls who you pay. Is that bullshit? Maria Konnikova is here. She is the author of The Confidence Game. Hello, Maria. Hello, Mike. That life coach. Uh, I guess we used to have a different name for it. We'd call it Chatterbox, or maybe Svengali. <laughs> but then someone said that'll be 50 bucks an hour. And then someone else said 50 bucks. I'm much better than you as a life coach. That's 150 bucks. Is it anything more specific than just some person giving some other person advice? Well, it officially says that it's kind of a motivational industry okay. and that it's about goals and goal setting. So it's all about motivation. And if you ask life coaches, they usually trace their origins back to the 70s, to the human potential movement. I know about the human potential movement. Yes. Yeah. And do you know about Warner Erhard I and know about Est? Est? Yes. Yes. Um, so I actually wrote about Est very briefly in my book on con artists mm -hmm. <laughs> um, because, well, that's that's kind of where I come out on that. Yeah. Any, I mean, I just think that any mass movements that have to book... A holiday in to yeah. gain speed. I mean, there are other terrible mass movements that have nothing to do with holiday ins or the convention hall at mm -hmm. a Hilton. But once your human potential movement is so tied in to, you know, con conference room B yeah. at the Marriott, you yes. might want to, you know, th that every other weekend's having the comic book convention, you might want to look inward. And but how much while, are... lo while looking inward, maybe you need a life coach. Yes. And how much are you paying for that holiday? <laughs> That's true. Weekend retreat. But in recent years, it's really taken off. Mm -hmm. Basically, since 08, since the Great Recession, life coaching has become huge because a lot of people lost their jobs and a lot of and people... And they wanted to tell us that to do ours. <laughs> yeah. And so, well, yes, so a lot of people wanted to register as life coaches. Right. And a lot of people wanted to seek out life coaches because they wanted someone to tell them what they were doing. Yeah. So according to some of the most recent statistics, and these come from 2012... Do you want to guess how big of an industry a year it is? I'm going to guess that there are 10,000 life coaches in America. I'm going to guess that their average income is $50,000. Okay. So $500 million. It's a $1.979 billion oh industry oh in 2012. God. It can't be. And as of 2014, there were 202,360 oh, life coaches. Now, you asked All what right. is well, a life coach. Well, then if you coach. do the math, they're not actually pulling in that high an annual salary. It's a $2 <laughs> billion dollar industry. And there are, did you say 200,000 life coaches? Self-enrichment education teachers. Okay, okay. So that but counts still, life coaches and some others. But still, 2 billion divided by 200,000 becomes a one with four zeros behind it. So that's 10,000. That's only 10,000. Maybe some of these are just doing it part-time. Maybe some of them are donating their times. Doesn't seem and per life maybe, coach that remunerative. Well, you know what they need to make more money, these life coaches? You know what they need? What do they need? Life a coaches. A life coach. Yeah. And you know what? You joke. 
but there is actually life coaching for life coaches. Who will, who will coach the um, coaches? The newest life coaching is in social media. So there are classes for life coaches for how to promote themselves on social media. So there's social media coaches. I like saying life coaches. <laughs> yes. So, but we have, you, you can know, do a live chat with a life coach. <laughs> and let me, let me also point out that the 200,000 statistics includes other professions because this is self-enrichment education teachers. Okay. So some of them might not be life coaches and it's from 2014. Like crystal aura healer types? Who knows? Maybe. Okay. So what are they, let's give them, we've, we've made a little fun. We've had a little fun with the life coach, but were I to meet a life coach and I do know some life coaches. In fact, some have impressed me as with it people with good advice. Mm -hmm. How would they define what they do? What um, value added they probably would say? Well, so, so here's the interesting thing. Yeah. Life coaching is completely and totally unregulated. Ah. There is, unlike, you know, a psychologist or a counselor where you have to, where it's a regulated industry, there are certain things that you need to get in order to be able to call yourself that. There are certain credentials. There are certain accredited institutions. Yeah. Life coaching simply doesn't have it. So They don't even have like a professional organization that throws some letters after their name? Sure, they have a few of those. Yeah. But you don't have to go to one of those to no. call yourself a life coach. Yeah. I could call myself a life coach right now. You and could, but right now you are held in esteem by most people. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so maybe I don't want to call myself a life coach. Okay. I could call myself a third base coach. Doesn't mean I'm so flashing the stop sign. There's the International Coach Federation, yeah. which is considered the best accreditation center. Sure. But... To be perfectly honest, it's not like you go to school and you have a professional degree. A lot of these certifications take 24 hours. Some take 48 hours. I can become a life minister, right? Yeah. In order yeah. to officiate at a friend's wedding yeah. in a, about the same amount of time as I can become a life coach. In fact, life coach, I don't even have to get the accreditation to be able to say that. So what would they say they do? Right. Because like ministers, life coaches offer salvation. And what is it? Well, I think they would say that we help you set your goals mm -hmm. and figure out how to motivate yourself, how to attain your goals. So we get you to set your priorities and we get you to figure out the best roadmap to reaching those priorities. So we help you figure out your life, Yeah, <laughs> figure out your future. So they're probably, I mean, you're an expert in psychology. They're probably doing a lot of things with overlap in various psychological fields. I was actually able to find a few studies about life coaching, cool. and most of those had to do with applying cognitive behavioral therapy techniques to life coaching. So we've already, we've done is that bullshit? It's about therapies, and we've talked about CBT. And you love it. Not bullshit. No, see, CBT is the best one you have. Yeah. I don't love it, but, but it's gold, the best we got. Standards, yeah. It's the best we got. And so if you use those types of approaches, especially if you're a psychologist who's doing life coaching, it can be incredibly helpful. And some psychologists end up becoming life coaches because you want to guess how much a life coach can charge, let's say, in Manhattan. I've, I just looked up a few rates. Tell me. So one that I just looked up a few hours ago was $400 an hour. Wow. So I'm actually considering rebranding yeah. re myself yeah. <laughs> as a life coach. We've all screwed that up. Yeah. You should call the gist a life coach podcast, and then we could and then charge charge two hundred dollars for yeah. for the th for the thirty minutes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so 
So that's just... Right. I'm not asking you to buy stamps.com. I'm, co- I'm life coaching you into it. I did find <laughs> one life coach who charged just $150 an hour, but do you know how old he is? How old? 25. So he's not seen a lot of life. He hasn't seen a lot of life yet. If at 25 I were making $150 an hour, yeah. I would be pretty damn thrilled. So what other studies have you found any way so, to apply some sort of scientific rigor to what they're doing? It's almost impossible. Mm-hmm. We, we, you remember how we, when we talked about psychoanalysis, we said it's really difficult because every therapist is different yeah. and it's hard to kind of follow a specific script because also every problem is different and it's di- very difficult to test that. Well, with life coaching, there isn't even a definition of what a life coach is. So, yes, we can do a study of it when we do cognitive behavioral therapy life coaching, which there's teaches nothing that, people... There's nothing that amuses me more, <laughs> delights me more that I say life coach and you say life coach. I love this. <laughs> life coaching. <laughs> Please go on about life coaching. So, with life, with life coaching... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, the only studies I found actually actually apply these sorts of techniques. So they they actually teach people about how to set goals mm-hmm. and they use the psychology of goal setting. And these are psychologists doing the study and those actually do seem to be effective. Well, so why would a psychologist sort of brand himself or herself as this? Is it that he doesn't want to deal with your emotional problems? He just wants to yeah. say, I just want to be proactive and don't tell me about your dad. I just want to, you know, concentrate on the business. And of course there's a there's yeah. a clientele for that or doesn't want to Yeah, it's a different I think stuff. it's a different type of clientele. Right. It's much more accepted in certain business circles to go to a life coach than it is to go mm. to a therapist. Life coaching is not therapy. And yeah. they say that. Like life coaches would say we are not counselors. We don't deal with emotional issues, we don't deal with depression, we don't right. treat any of that. So we cogn- just deal a, a cognitive behavioral therapist might want to say Either I can make more money or I like this sort of more positive thing where we don't get into yeah, the, uh, the muckety-muck of mommy didn't love you and all that stuff. And yeah. all of the studies I've found, the journals are published in, are kind of positive psychology journals. Mm-hmm. Positive psychology. Yeah. So that's the psychology of Because like helping happens. someone with deep emotional pain, that's not positive at all. No. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I don't know why a legitimate psychologist would become a life coach, and I don't know that many of them do. Yeah. Um, it's for the but, money. Maybe. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but I like their job. There's, it seems like if you could really do it and help people um, and you, for all the jokes we're making, yeah. I could see that if you get the right life coach and, or if you're a life coach and have the right clientele, it could absolutely help people's lives. Listen, if someone were to sit me down yeah. and f- give me a framework for figuring out my goals, yeah. my short-term goals, my medium-term, my long-term goals, yeah. prioritize them, and then help me figure out how I'm most likely to attain those goals. Yeah. And that's a pretty helpful service. Well, th- throughout uh, the history of civilization, we've <laughs> lost a lot of money to people <laughs> promising to do just that. Exactly. I mean, that's the that's the th- that's the thing that's out there. That's why what's her name Condo with the organizing. The condo so, method is so crazy. People just want a little direction in their lives. Yes. And so unfortunately, you know, if we could say that life coaching could always could deliver this, then we would say that life coaching is totally not bullshit. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, this is not life coaching in the sense that there are no metrics, there's no training, there's no how, how in the world, you know, do we know what's going on? And in fact, I found out that there is absolutely huge class action lawsuit currently going on on a state level against a life coaching organization that asserts that it was a pyramid scheme yeah. because 
people got really hurt. People poured lots of money into it, and there's actually no accreditation and no evidence that any of this works. Right. And that lawsuit has not been dismissed thus far. Maybe that needn't be a reflection on all life coaches, but on that one pyramid scheme, perhaps it was. Okay, so let's render our verdict. It's a two-pronged question. I want you to consider both of them. Okay. The first is life coaching is that bullshit, and the second is life coaching is that bullshit. <laughs> life coaching, as it stands today, is bullshit. Uh-huh. Life coaching yeah. with the cognitive behavioral aspects is not bullshit because the cognitive behavioral part of it isn't bullshit. Yeah. And we there is a lot of psychology of motivation and goal setting. And we do know a lot about that. So if you actually get someone who has studied that and who knows how to implement it and who's good at coaching mm-hmm. you, then that wouldn't be bullshit. Unfortunately, that's not what life coaching today is. Gotcha. Maria Konnikova is the author of The Confidence Game. Thank you, Maria. Thank you, Mike. Will you be my life coach? I'll be your life coach. So everything you do, I mean, convenience now pretty much is intertwined with the internet. I don't know, maybe if you're a canoeist or a cabinet maker, untrue, but I bet you're on ecanoe.com. The e prefix, that used to be a big thing. Now, not so much. Anyway, we've disrupted the canoe space enough, but think about finance. There are sites out there that will let you trade stocks, but what about if you want to just get control of your wealth, such as it is, if you want to plan for retirement, if you just want to get on top of things, but you're comfortable with the internet, you're comfortable with an app, interfaces that are online are even preferable to you. You don't want to hire a guy necessarily, go into his office, you know, look at his suit that probably should have been swapped out 11 years ago. Well, there's a great app for you and it's called Betterment. It allows you to take control of your financial future. It has 150,000 customers. They're managing over $4 billion in money for people like you and people like you or people who maybe listen to podcasts and wouldn't mind to have a low cost way of managing their finances and the feeling, the feeling of just that you've got a grasp of this thing, this really important thing, like why you work every day is this thing I'm talking about, Betterment. You can get up to six months of automated investing free, and you can also find out more information when you go to betterment.com slash gist. That's betterment.com slash gist. It makes investing easier at a lower cost. Betterment, investing made better. And now the spiel, it's a crime, Bill. Primary politics, they're not just internecine bloodbaths, charges of Gestapo tactics, or a race to the bottom in the area of yard sign desecration. I mean, don't get me wrong, that stuff is awesome. But there's also some deeper policy discussions. And right now, but possibly for not much longer if the Democratic race becomes more clear-cut for Clinton, but right now, there's an interesting debate over the 1994 crime bill and its effect on black America. On the one hand, the bill led to a situation where we have a million African Americans in prison or in jails, There's about 1.3 million white, Hispanic, or other races behind bars. That is a huge disproportionate number of African Americans in jail. On the other hand, the bill did help save the lives of, it's safe to say, thousands of African Americans. Here is Bill Clinton at the 1994 crime bill's signing ceremony. The American people have been waiting a long time for this day. In the last 25 years... Half a million Americans have been killed by other Americans. 
It's not yet been 25 years since the passage of the bill. It's been 22 years, and last year's statistics aren't in. But in the time since the signing of the crime bill, the statistic is fewer than 350,000 Americans have been killed by other Americans. And while a disproportionately large percentage of those killed Americans have been African Americans— by African-Americans, it should be noted, because most murders happen within ethnic groups. But while a large number of the dead are African-Americans, so are a large number of the living, of those who would not be living but for the crime bill. There are some arguments against this point. One is that crime was going down already. Anytime I talk about the effects of the 94 crime bill, people will write and say crime was already going down. And I hate that because already going down, that makes it sound like it was on this trajectory, this gravitational inevitability. Crime was already going down. Well, murder first crested above 20,000 in 1975, but then in 1977, we could say murder was already going down. But then it went up again in 1979, and it went up again in 1980. Oh, but in 1981, it was already going down. And down it did go, in fact, until 1986, when it went up again, and up and up and up until 1994, the worst year for murders, about 24,000 Americans murdered. Now, crime rises and falls because of a lot of factors, but it is not accurate to say that crime, specifically the murder rate, would have fallen absent the crime bill. The more compelling evidence is that the bill, whatever its deleterious effects, did have some pronounced effect on the problem it set out to address in the exact way it sought to address it. Another argument against the crime bill actually bringing crime down, meaning the murder rate, is that, well, look at other countries. The murder rate went down there too in about the same period. Tennessee Coates, in an otherwise powerful piece about the over-incarceration of black Americans, makes this point. Mostly, I agree with his points that the effects that the crime bill wrought have been overly punitive, not smart, and in need of reform. But he also says that the crime bill had almost no effect on crime, and I think he's wrong. Coates spends one paragraph in his 20,000-word article on this, and his evidence is to quote an estimate from researchers saying the crime bill caused a single-digit drop in crime. But the consensus among crime researchers is that it had a much more profound effect than that. And Coates also cites the fact that the Canadian homicide rate fell since 1994 also. It did. It was about two murders per 100,000, and now it's about 1.5 murders per 100,000. The same period, the U.S. murder rate went from nine murders per 100,000 to 4.5 per 100,000. What that means, if you look at the rate is that when we're talking about 100,000 fewer murders that would have happened or that did happen but for the crime bill, remember, this was also at a time when America added 50 million in population, which is to say the crime bill was an accomplishment, which is not to say that the crime bill was 100% successful, and Hillary Clinton agrees with that. Now, my husband said at the NAACP last summer that... It solved some problems, but it created other problems, and I agree. And one of those problems was, unfortunately, a move to expand the reasons why people would be incarcerated, not just at the federal level, which was what this bill was about, but in states and localities as well. 
Bernie Sanders also voted for that crime bill, as he said to John Dickerson on Face the Nation. Do you regret your support for that crime bill now in retrospect? Look, that bill, whenever you have a piece of legislation that has it's a big bill and a lot of stuff in it, it had the Violence Against Women Act. And this echoes a press release he put out in February of this year. Headline, Sanders voted for 94 crime bill to support assault weapons ban, violence against women provisions. But at the time, Sanders didn't frame his support in this way exactly. He mainly used the crime bill as a chance to make economic points. And to his credit, he has not wavered from those economic points. And to his further credit, I would say he's right. He made a speech on the floor of the House of Representatives saying that education, not electrocutions, are the way to solve the crime problem. But he didn't voice any opposition to the idea of locking more people up. Mr. Chairman, it is my firm belief that clearly there are people in our society who are horribly violent, who are deeply sick and sociopathic, and clearly these people must be put behind bars in order to protect society from them. Even more starkly, I found this tape from earlier in 1994. Members of the Congressional Black Caucus were hearing from administration officials about the crime bill, and they invited a special guest, Congressman from Vermont, Bernie Sanders. I think there is no disagreement among all of us that we need strong law enforcement. Uh, many of us are in agreement that the 100,000 new police officers are going to be a real help, not only in big cities in America, but in communities throughout the state of Vermont. We need that help, and we appreciate that help. And we support the concept of changing police methods and integrating the police into our communities, as you've been talking about. Sanders went on to say that the most significant anti-crime program is a jobs program. I guess you could say, or I guess some people today say that Bernie Sanders was wrong to vote for the bill. But I don't think he was wrong because crime really was out of control because there was consensus that the efforts of the crime bill was needed. And I think that consensus was mostly correct. But here's the important point. Even if that consensus was wrong, that America needed more cops and tougher sentences, it was the consensus. The crime bill was the overwhelming will of the people, the overwhelming demand of the electorate. If Bill Clinton, as a popularly elected politician, could not deliver on this, he surely would have been voted out of office and the participants in this democracy would elect someone else, a get-tough-on-crime Republican, actually. But this wasn't just a sop to his opposition to get his agenda through. This was also a promise to the very people who voted him in. Bill Clinton's voters, the electorate that chose him, looks a lot different from the electorate that'll vote for whoever the Democratic nominee is in 2016. In the 20 years between 92 and 2002, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama's share of the white vote did not change. They both got 39%. But in 1992, 87% of all voters were white. In 2012, only 72% of all voters were white. You know this, but think about what it means on a practical level to a democratically elected official. He was serving the people who got him into office to say nothing of serving the demands of everyone from cops to school kids to criminologists. So maybe this is why, according to Edison Research, in the Democratic primary so far, 92% of black voters 65 and older went with Hillary Clinton. Only 45% of black voters under the age of 25 did. The majority of black voters under the age of 25 voted for Bernie Sanders. But another way of saying that is, is Hillary Clinton is narrowly losing the vote 
of those voters who were between the ages of three years old down to four years from being born when her husband passed this signature piece of crime-fighting legislation. And the legislation had a lot of problems, but also some measure of solution. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi is a registered mugwump after being wooed by the passion and fortitude of Grover Cleveland. While Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, is a stalwart through and through, some say that's only because he is the bastard son of Roscoe Conkling. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, vacillates between the two factions, so he'll probably cast the classic kangaroo ticket, the gist sponsored by the Society for the Preservation of 1884 Political Campaign Arcana and listeners like you. Umpuru de Peru du Peru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>